Here the whole world, stars, water, air, and field and forest as they were, reflected in a single mind. Like cast-off clothes was left behind, in ashes, yet with hopes that she, reborn from holy poverty, in Lenten lands hereafter may, resume them on her Easter day. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 21. Poet, Seeker, and the Woman Who Captivated C.S. Lewis. After Hours with Abigail Santa Maria. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Matt, and Andrew break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we've been talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And this month, we've been discussing Eros. So it's appropriate that we speak about Lewis's wife. And in this After Hours episode, we're going to be doing just that with Abigail Santamaria. Abigail Santamaria has earned an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia University. She has contributed to numerous publications. And in 2016, she co-founded Biography by Design to help individuals, families, and corporations tell their stories in a variety of formats, ranging from custom-crafted books to website narratives. And she's here today because she's the author of her much-praised biography about Jack's wife, Joy, poet, seeker, and the woman who captivated C.S. Lewis. Abigail Santamaria, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks for having me. Well, this is the second time you've appeared on Pints with Jack. The first time you were on the show, you were part of a tribute to the late Walter Hooper. And as I said in the introduction, we are currently going through the Eros chapter of The Four Loves. So we really had to do a little bit of a deep dive into the subject of Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman. But before we get to that, I am currently drinking some peppermint tea just to soothe my throat a little bit. Are you drinking anything? I have a few swigs of my coffee left. Excellent. Well, with that, cheers. Cheers. So I gave you a brief introduction, but would you mind uh, filling in a few more of the details and telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I have been interested in literary nonfiction biography since my MFA program at Columbia, where I took a course uh, where we ostensibly were reading a, a full literary biography per week and discussing the craft and examining the sources and the techniques and the narrative strategies of using sources, facts to tell a story, completely non-fictional story, um, not making anything up, but weaving a narrative. Um, I remember reading the biography of Zelda Fitzgerald um, who's married to F. Scott Fitzgerald by Nancy Milford. And her introduction was about the process of discovery of driving around and interviewing people who had known Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald and who had boxes of letters or photos in their attics and pulling those out and being the first person to see uh, and discover all this material that spoke to the life, the story, the, the mind. Uh, of Zelda Fitzgerald. And I was so taken by that process of discovery. And I was sort of romanced by it and thought, this is something I would love to do. And then I remember looking at book after book, week after week, the endnotes, and um, <laughs> feeling increasingly intimidated by 
just how many years of work go into literary biography. And so I thought I probably uh, should find something that's, you know, find it, find a subject or a, or a subgenre of nonfiction, narrative nonfiction that maybe doesn't require, you know, like 10 years of, of my life per book, but I couldn't shake it. And uh, when I was reading a lot of Lewis at the time, and when I read A Grief Observed, I really wanted to know more about who this woman was who had captivated him and who had broken him, really, uh, because I read A Grief Observed. I think it was immediately following or one or two books following uh, Mere Christianity. So the juxtaposition of the tone, how sure he was and reasoned and logical in his arguments in Mere Christianity and in his thinking, and then to see the transformation to who he was, to, to ha- his demeanor and, and his thinking um, and his questioning after a devastating loss and, un- you know, of a great love he never expected. I just uh, had to know more about who who Joy was. And so I um, found Lyle Dorset's book, which was a great, amazing resource. And I called him up and I, I, I thought, I don't know if he's going to want to talk to somebody else who might be interested in working on, you know, his subject. And he answered the phone right away and he listened. And I said, I was really interested in Joy. And I, I had looked at his book and I had written down a number of questions and I felt like there might be room for another longer biography. I, I very gently and hesitantly <laughs> tested the waters and uh, I wondered what he thought and what, what other sources might might be out there. And he was incredibly gracious and told me, I think it's time that, you know, Joy has another look and a, a woman in particular. And he prayed with me on the phone in that conversation, in that first conversation. And he offered to share with me all of his research. And he had corresponded with a, a lot of people in the eighties who were, this was, I think this was 2003 and he had corresponded with people who were dead by then and, and had also interviewed people in person and had those interview notes like Joy's brother, for example, really important figure. Um, That's Howard, right? Howard, yeah. And they had, uh, so he had all those notes and he offered to share everything with me. And uh, and then from there, I started reaching out to people, um, like both of Joy's sons and her, and Howard's um, first wife, Ruth, who um, I, I'm not sure if Lyle ever knew about Ruth, but he certainly didn't interview her. Howard had a second wife who was the one who um, he was married to at the time that Lyle interviewed him. So I'm not sure if Lyle ever even knew about the first wife. And um, the first wife's name is Ruth. I found her, her, I think, before I knew about that there was a second wife. And she she was still living, and she was a few subway stops away from me in Manhattan. And so I asked her if I could come meet her. and And she had known Joy uh, personally. The second wife had not, and uh, so we did a lot. I did a lot of interviews with her, and she also had a nice stack of letters um, between Joy and Howard and herself from the early 1940s, which I think are still letters that nobody um, 
that are, that still remain in that family's possession and that are not, you know, archived anywhere else. And those really told an interesting story of Joy's years in Ossining and leaving New York, going to Ossining, and then Bill finishing Nightmare Alley and Joy's struggle to reconcile her career with her new motherhood. Um, she was a new mother at the time. And, and also, you know, more about her, her relationship with her brother and a lot about her, her politics at the time that were shifting. That was a, a tremendous resource and also just beyond thrilling to very easily have just made a couple of phone calls and things were there, you know, things came up, sources, papers, uh, materials, and those things kept happening over and over again. Renee, Joy's first cousin, who was Bill's widow, she had kept boxes and boxes and boxes of his papers, which I think are now at the Wade Center, um, but they weren't at the time. And, and I flew down to Florida and I interviewed her. And then I, uh, uh, ap- after she died, her um, daughter invited me down to, to come to just go through everything, all of the files and everything. And there was a lot there that that gave me a, a window, a deeper window into Bill and his past and his history and his struggles and his writings. And, and that was, that was really helpful. And there were some things related to joy that were, you know, tucked away in there too. Uh, it was a lot to go through. I mean, it was like a room filled with cardboard filed boxes. And I just, I like didn't emerge for six days or something. And, <laughs> Um, or if I did, it was to go to Kinko's to make photocopies because I didn't have a smartphone at the time and I couldn't just, you know, scan things onto a PDF reader, uh, from my iPhone. Like I do now a lot of trips to, uh, to the copy shops during those days of research. Were Joy's poems and other letters, were they yet publicly available? No. Uh, well, there, I should say there was some archived at the Wade Center. There was some archived in Lewis's papers. I mean, she has her sort of has a sub collection, I guess, under under him. But there was a day in I think it maybe was in 2008 when I was in my apartment in New York and I got a phone call from Oxford and it was Douglas Gresham. And he said, are you sitting down? And I said, no, I was actually on my way out the door. I had my keys in my hand and my coat was on. And he said, well, sit down. (laughs) And so I sat down and he said uh, his, his mother's friend, Jean Wakeman had, had died, which I knew. And he had gone to Oxford to go through her, her house and help order her things. And among her things, he found a large cardboard box and he told me, uh, you know, I'm looking at a cardboard box of my mother's papers and he started pulling things out and there were short stories and there was, um, you know, a manila envelope um, with courage written on the front and it was full of, of love sonnets to Jack and, uh, and lots of other poems and drafts of poems, letters and all kinds of things. And so he said, I can't mail these things because, you know, they shouldn't be put in the mail. So I'm going to take them back to Malta with me, buy a separate suitcase and, and take them back to Malta. So you'll have to come and look at them there if you want to see them. <laughs> so, so a few weeks later, I was in Malta spending almost my entire trip in Malta, which was, I think, 
four or five days in the tiny back room of an office supply shop using their photocopy machine to copy the whole box of papers. And I didn't really have much time to read. So I just, um, I just copied and copied and then figured I'd read later. But in the middle of the night, one night it was cold and the heat had gone off or something. And I got up and I, I pulled one file out of the pile and it was, it was the courage file and Doug hadn't read the poems yet either. So nobody knew what was there. And I, as I was reading, I, you know, and see an acrostic poem for, with, you know, Clive Staples Lewis <laughs> vertically down the, down the left side of the page. And I just, and then it's to see the dates on the poems, on the drafts and, uh, and to see that she was in, in the case of some of the sonnets had never yet met him in person um, and was still living in upstate New York with her husband and her boys. I was just, I mean, the wind was just knocked out of me. That was an incredibly powerful moment. And so all of these discoveries were, you know, the process of years and years of work and building relationships with people who um, had things or discovered things and shared them with me. And it was a huge, you know, foundational scholarly effort to just, um, it's a very different experience to be, you know, writing the first major biography of somebody versus writing um, a good friend of mine, Heather Clark wrote uh, something like the 10th biography of Sylvia Plath that was she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for last year and an incredibly different experience that we talk about often but she was able to go to Sylvia Plath's archive that's been through gone through by a million scholars um, and PhD students and just go flip through chronologically you know and she also had access to a lot of other new material and did a lot of interviews but the core archive was there and it was in order. And um, it's a very different experience for a biographer to get the pieces totally out of order, to not know what's coming at you or, or what you're going to find or what holes are going to be left at the end. And then once you do get it, to have to make order of it and organize it. It's a, it's a, huge, it's a huge undertaking. I bet. I came to joy relatively late, but I can now do it at a point when... There are her collected letters. There are all of her various works. There is your biography that can put a shape around all of this for me. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, Joy, Poet, Seeker, and the Woman Who Captivated C.S. Lewis, in a little bit. But before we do that, uh, let's talk about Joy's life. I think most people on this podcast will have some idea, uh, but I'd like to fill in a few details and talk about some of the things in your book which you discuss, uh, which I don't hear talked about quite as much, or at least in not as much detail. So could we just kick things off by you telling us a little bit about Joyce's family, her childhood, her early life and education? Sure. Uh, She was born in 1915 to parents who had immigrated to the United States as young children around the turn of the century and were, um, or before the turn of the century. Um, you know, I, one thing I should say before I get into all this is that the book was, pu- was finished in, um, mid 2014 and published in mid 2015. And I am deeply in the life of another person <laughs> now, Madeline Langle. So I haven't read my own book in years about joy. And so it's not all, all of the dates are not, you know, fresh on my memory. Um, and all of the facts, but obviously I was completely immersed in her life for over a decade, but it's not, it's not exactly on the tip of my brain right now. 
Um, so I don't, so the exact dates that her, her parents came, I think were in the 1890s. And then um, they were very poor as children and they became educated and they had this whole um, New York City Jewish immigrant typical experience of like kind of bootstraps experience, getting an education and moving to the Bronx, which in the, you know, first half of the 20th century was, it was where you moved up to from, from the Lower East Side, poverty, you know, place of poverty and tenement existence. Um, there were nicer, newer Art Deco buildings, apartment buildings being built in the Bronx and, and that's where they went and that's where they raised Joy and Howard. Um, Joy was born in 1915 and Howard was born in 1919. And uh, Joy was brilliant and well-read growing up. She was uh, not always the best student. I got her transcripts from Hunter College and her grades were very mixed, not because she wasn't brilliant, she was, but because um, she really only did the work that she wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, if she wasn't that interested, she she just wasn't that interested. So um, she went to college very young. She graduated from high school at 14, started college at 15, I believe. And then she went on to uh, Columbia for her master's degree, which in those days took a year, was a, a one-year program. And she finished her master's degree in 1935 at the age of 20. And it was a little late for somebody to be getting into communism by the late 30s. But she she had an incident in um, in college at Hunter College where she was looking out a classroom window and there was a classmate of hers on um, the rooftop or a window ledge of, of a nearby building. And the girl jumped to her death. And Joy found out later that the, the girl's parents had, had died. She and her sister were living with an aunt or something. And, and, I, and I can't remember all the details of the story. But they basically, they were starving. And it was a suicide prompted by the ravages of the depression, which was raging at the time. It took me a very long time to find this joy talked about it as a, a turning point um, in her thinking and, and in her, in her movement towards communism. And, and I spent days, literally days in the microfilm room at the New York public library, scrolling through microfilm of small local New York city newspapers, like the Bronx daily news, looking for accounts of, suicides of a Hunter College student during the spring semester of Joy's senior year and finally found it and, and finally found some descriptions that I was actually able to use in the book. And it was, I feel like that is so important because it was, you know, it was, it was a really crucial experience of trauma that um, shaped Joy's thinking and then her entire, you know, her entire life. It, maybe she would have been prompted towards communism by something else, but that's a pretty devastating experience for um, a young person to have to witness somebody her own age kill herself and then to know that that it was because of you know of money and the, go the government not helping as much as she thought it sh the government should be helping and and to, to need somebody to blame for that um, and so that was a turning point for her but it, she didn't join the party immediately after that it was it still percolated for for a few more years and but it, really in 1936, 1937 is when she was really beginning to write a lot of 
more political poetry and then submitted it to the Yale Younger Poets competition, um, which is still to this day an extremely prestigious and coveted prize to win in the, in the world of poetry. She didn't join the party formally until I believe, if I'm correct, I think it was 1938, but she had been writing poetry um, that was very political and especially um, poetry about the Spanish Civil War. If Joy's known at all outside of outside of Shadowlands and C.S. Lewis circles, it's it's in the very small niche world of a niche the niche academic world of Spanish Civil War poetry during the 1930s. <laughs> so that poem about when the snow starts falling, it's 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 a gorgeous poem. It, I think it's still probably one of my favorites that she's ever written. Mm-hmm. So mentioning the Spanish Civil War and communism is probably a good point to pivot and talk about her first husband, uh, Bill Gresham, whom she married in 1942. How did their romance begin and what was their marriage like? Well, they both were communists and they both were members, very active members of of an organization called League of American Writers, which was a leftist literary organization populated mostly by communists, but really, really, really very uh, just comprehensive in (laughs) almost in its membership. When you look at the list of names of people who were members, it was major figures who you would, who we still talk about today. You know, there were so many people who, um, whose names I recognized looking, you know, looking through the rosters. Bill was a pulp fiction writer. He wrote many, many, many short stories for magazines. And uh, he um, had been a a volunteer soldier in the Spanish Civil War. There was a group of Americans, American communists, young men who were so passionate about the cause of anti-fascism and that they uh, created their own volunteer brigade called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, and they raised money and they went overseas to Spain and with, you know, really inadequate supplies and weaponry. And they joined up with Spaniards who were also fighting Franco to give them assistance. But Bill was not a, he was not cut out to be a soldier. And as it was, he had a lot of issues of anxiety and depression and when he came back from Spain, he had he was really traumatized by having experienced war, and it really triggered kind of a he had a kind of a post traumatic stress disorder response um, based on everything that I could see, and of course it wasn't understood as that at the time. He also had tuberculosis and was in a tuberculosis hospital, and he had. Um, at least one attempt at suicide before he and Joy married. So he was a troubled soul, but he was also very funny. And he was a folk singer and he wrote, um, he wrote folk songs. He wrote some Spanish civil war folk songs. And I actually interviewed Pete Seeger. I mean, I happened to be sitting next to Pete Seeger at a potluck. <laughs> this is what I, this is <laughs> I what should I, do. Exactly. This is what I mean by, you know, things kept, it was really like a kind of divine process, the research, because, you know, it was at a a potluck sitting next to Pete Seeger. How does that even happen? I 
was involved in a with an organization that um, raised awareness around cleaning the Hudson River, um, at which he has championed for championed for decades. And this was a, this was an event they had, and he came, and his wife came, and um, the person across from me said, who was a fr- good friend of mine, uh, the writer Akiko Bush, said, um, "You have to, Abby, ask Pete if he knew Bill Gresham." And he said, "Oh yeah, Eddie, he didn't know Joy, but he said Bill Gresham. Yeah, he taught me some some Spanish Civil War songs in the village. You know, had a, he had a nice bass voice, and you know, and then he wrote me a little letter with a, a little some memories." And uh, Bill really attracted people to him. He People loved to be around him because he had such charisma. He was entertaining. He was fun. He was funny. He put on magic shows. Um, he had previously been in the, uh, worked in the carny world. And he was, he was a good looking guy. And th- there was, it's understandable that, you know, a young woman who was so passionate about ide- ideologies that he had actually sacrificed for uh it's understandable that they were drawn together and plus they were in the same they ran in the same circles they had mutual friends they were going to the same meetings um they were part of the same world and they both had a love of literature yes yeah and and what was what was their marriage like i know it's hard to kind of sum up sum up a, a relationship like that very quickly but was it a relatively peaceful marriage or was it kind of fiery from the start It was not, you know, a traditional marriage from the start. They were, you know, New York bohemians kind of, but it was tumultuous throughout. I don't have tremendous documentation of their, I think their first year of marriage, but, but those letters that, that Ruth Howard's first wife gave me begin when she was pregnant with their first child, David, and then, you know, continued on. It was it was not peaceful. It was never you would never say this was you know a peaceful tranquil life. Neither of them were really peaceful tranquil people. Um, and and Bill, that's the impression I get. Yeah, and Bill was he would he had issues that never and so did Joy, but you know he couldn't sleep. He had anxiety that kept him up at night. He had panic attacks. He drank and fatherhood, parenthood, you know, is overwhelming and. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. And when you're already unstable, it's not the thing to pull you together. Mm. In most cases, you know, it's it's kind of better to pull yourself together before before having kids. Um, not that it can't ever work that way. Not that it can't be the impetus to becoming your best self. But it, it you know, the sleep deprivation and um, yeah, and the, yeah, and the need to make to, to make money, you know, and, and, and be on a schedule and not be able to just get up and go all the time. You know, those things were hard, but the, the financial stress was overwhelming. Um, he really had to produce and joy actually stepped in and helped a lot. And, um, to what extent is unclear, uh, in terms of, because there's no drafts or manuscripts left. And, and in my book, I, you know, I talked about her, um, really, you know, working with him on, on getting chapters done and, um, and, uh, it ended up being his best book. And I think hands down, she was the smarter of the two of them and, uh, the more well-read and the deeper thinker, but he, but he had, he was talented as well. Hmm. And I think there's actually a new version of Nightmare Alley that's literally coming out right now. Yeah. A Guillermo del Toro movie. Hmm. 
Now, those who are kind of shocked that Lewis married someone who was a former communist, they're even more shocked to discover that she was also deeply involved with Dianetics. For those that are unfamiliar with the term, what is it and how did Joy and Bill get involved in it? Nightmare Alley came out in 1947. I think the I think the movie was in 1947. The book may have been published that either that year or the year before. They got a lot of money um, when the movie, when the first movie version came out, and they bought a big farmhouse with it, um, deep in the isolated woods of Statsburg, New York. And so they went further away from New York. You know, their friends and community was less accessible, and they were really isolated out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, in this giant house, which um, they put all their money into and then couldn't furnish and didn't have set aside anything to pay taxes on. So they suddenly were poor again. So financial stress continued and Bill had a major suicide attempt in there or he disappeared and Joy thought he was committing suicide and it and it was during his disappearance, during the hours that he was gone, that she had a dramatic experience of, of God at sort of a road to Damascus conversion experience, although she didn't, when it was over, believe in Jesus, but she believed it, she went from being um, an atheist to uh, believing in God, just not knowing who that God was. And that started her down the path of reading about C.S. Lewis, but also searching all kinds of religions and self-help uh techniques and and philosophies and uh so she read widely during that time and it was um it was in i believe 1950 when dianetics was created by l ron hubbard who famously was quoted in many places as saying um something along the lines of the easiest way to become a millionaire is to start a religion um (laughs) And in a completely unrelated notice, yeah. I just started this thing called Scientology. Yeah, Scientology, which which really is Dianetics now. It's not really called Dianetics anymore. Now it's Scientology. So, uh, But it started as Dianetics, and he did not call it a religion at the time. It was this kind of psych, psychological self-help fad trend that many, many people were buying into. And so, so many people that the American Psychological Association had to come out with a formal statement saying, we do not endorse this technique and it's dangerous. And it could be uh, especially dangerous to people who have other you know, pre-existing issues, psychological issues. Um, but Joy and Bill bought it. I mean, they really, this is hard. I know that there are people who really don't want to believe this about Joy and, and who take issue with my book because of it. Um, but it, it is, it is extremely difficult, if not really, I believe impossible to, to, to justify the letters that she wrote talking about Dianetics. And also, you know, I interviewed multiple people who, you know, testified to the fact that she was very, very into it and believe, you know, believed that the techniques worked and practiced them at home. And she and Bill met L. Ron Hubbard, who was also a Pulp Fiction sci-fi writer who Bill had mm-hmm. uh, met, you know, through that scene at some point. You know, the, the evidence for her really having believed this and is pretty is pretty solid. And, um, you know, I, I have I have heard from some people passionately 
arguing for the fact that, oh, she just did it for Bill. She was just into it for Bill. And that's not, it doesn't square with who she, with who she was. She, she was, she was in love with him, but I, I just don't see her, you know, being that involved in something just for the sake of stroking his ego. She definitely seemed like the person that would go into everything with two feet. Yeah. <laughs> no half measures. Now you've alluded to her own spiritual journey over over the over the last half an hour or so. So she, Bill disappears. He phones her. She thinks that he's about to commit suicide. I think David is alive at that point, but they haven't had Douglas. Yeah, they were both alive and very young and sleeping. Okay, so she's the mother of two young children, and she thinks her husband is about to die. She has this spiritual experience, this uh, feeling the comfort of God, and the years that follow that. She's trying to work out what that means. And through that, that's how they start coming across C.S. Lewis and reading his books. How did, how did Joy's relationship with Lewis grow from there such that she later ends up in England with her sons? She and Bill were both um, searchers at the time. And that's part of what led them to Dianetics. But it also simultaneously led them to C.S. Lewis. And they were interested and really drawn to his books and um, began really believing in in Christianity. And they also came across Chad Walsh's um, story on Lewis, um, I believe in the Atlantic, Atlantic Monthly at the time, and wrote to Chad, introduced themselves and how do we get in touch with Lewis. And they struck up a, a friendship with Chad Walsh, who, um, uh, who was a professor at Beloit College but also had a lake house in Vermont. So he would drive every summer with his family through to Vermont. And, um, and they, they said, stop by sometime. And they, they met each other and they became friends. And then the Greshams would go to the lake house in Vermont and the Walshes would stop at the Greshams house on their way to or from, or both um, their lake house. And um, so Walsh said, go ahead and write to him. And he, he responds to letters. Um, and so Joy and Bill wrote Lewis a joint letter introducing themselves. And I think, you know, they, they seemed to have indicated that they wanted, they were looking for kind of spiritual guidance and advice. And uh, like so many people who wrote to Lewis saw him as a kind of pastor figure um, <laughs> because of his books and they got a response and uh, Bill eventually lost interest and, um, and Joy uh, Joy's interest grew, to say the least. <laughs> she had an, a deeply satisfying intellectual um, and on on some level emotional uh, correspondence with him and spiritual in a way that she had never had before with anybody and certainly didn't have with her husband. And she started to fall in love with him through his letters. And that was where it got interesting <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so bill ended up having an affair with her cousin well not to start the long story short yes um but i, I will say i think the, the traditional view by people who you know who love and want to protect lewis is that joy was is the shadowlands version that joy was you know kind of like a wounded um wounded abused wife who went to England as a cry for help and met him and he kind of rescued her from this 
not in any way consciously because he didn't fall in love with her for years, but, um, but ultimately, you know, he was sort of the, the way out and into something much better for her. But, uh, and that, that is true. Um, but it didn't, you know, the way it was actually orchestrated was quite different and the order of things was, was different. So she was writing to, to Lewis and began writing love sonnets for him or about him. Um, and some to him though, you know, when, or if she ever gave them to him is, is not completely clear. And, um, and decided to plan a trip to England though. They didn't have really any money. And during that time, her cousin Renee was fleeing an abusive marriage and the family said, go hide out with Bill and Joy in the woods upstate because your husband will never find you there. He had threatened to kill Renee and the children if she left him. So Renee went to live with them in this big giant farmhouse and Joy was planning her trip and she saw an opportunity for somebody to be there to help watch the boys and, and take care of the house so that she could go to meet Lewis. And, you know, Renee told me she's, that they would play Chinese checkers and they would be drinking Myers rum and very specific and very, you know, clear on, on a number of details. And that, you know, Joy said she was in love with Lewis and, and Belle had written it, you know, in her journal when Joy came back from that first trip to England, uh, Joy's in love with C.S. Lewis and, and Renee's in love with her husband. Mm-hmm. So while Joy was away, Bill and Renee had an affair um, while Joy was in England and she was, and Joy was um, really, you know, her, she was really in love with Lewis before she went to England and her letters to Bill while she was in, in England are, are telling. I mean, she, she bought a certain dress hoping that Lewis would like it, you know, and wore it and then told this to her husband who was back at home with her cousin. You know, I'm not sure how much she expected Bill, to, Bill and Renee to get together. I'm not sure if she would, she may have been okay with them having a sexual relationship, but not actually falling in love. There were, there were a number of hints that she and Bill had an open marriage or talked about having an open marriage or agreed to have an open marriage. But then when it came down to it, it, you know, wasn't how it played out. Um, Are those hints in the correspondence? You know, um, I think it was her brother who said, who said that they had an open marriage. I believe that that was, that's the source, but I'd have to go back and check my own book. Mm -hmm. So she went back to New York and she, and her Bill and Renee had fallen in love. They wrote to her in England before she left saying that they were in love and they wanted to get married. Um, and while she was in England, she was very, certainly at the very least, very flirtatious with Lewis and he was not biting at all. And um, so here she had been writing these love sonnets for somebody, gone to England to meet him, flirted with him and gotten nowhere. And yet her husband had had fallen in love with somebody else. And she was going back to um, a marriage that was ending. Um, And she said, I'm taking the boys and I'm leaving. And he said, no, you cannot take my boys to England. I, I can't live without them. I'll leave Renee. I'll do whatever you want. Please stay. Um. And she said no, and she left. And then she came to England, initially London. Right. And then over time moved into Oxford, not too far away from the Kilns. Yeah, after, I can't remember the, how much time she was in London, at least a year. And, um, 
And during that time, really, really pretty destitute. Um, and Lewis began paying boarding school fees for the boys. And um, ultimately, she moved into a small place in Headington. And then for the rest of the story, we watch Shadowlands and we see <laughs> their relationship develop. Uh, Joy, I'd always known that she had cancer, but I hadn't realized really until I read your book how dogged she had been by health issues throughout her life. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know how much of it would, would have been treatable now, but she definitely had thyroid issues that she was not getting the treatment that she would have gotten today. And so there was a lot of sluggishness and there were, you know, I think today that certainly would have been a lot more easily treatable. But those some of those early treatments, you know, like the radium collar that, that did more damage than good and, and possibly was what caused her cancer. Now, you mentioned earlier that she hadn't got very far with him before. What was it that changed? What, what was it that, that changed in, from in Lewis's side uh, that ultimately led him to marry her not once but twice and to write the epitaph to describe her in, in such lofty terms, somebody who clearly was so important to him? That was the quote of the week at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, you know, first of all, there's the mystery of love, right? Um, and so there's only so there's only so much we can explain um, intellectually about that. But I, I will say there was a real softening in joy towards the end of her life those last few years, especially after she was diagnosed with cancer, knowing that she was near the end of her life. Um, and before that, I would call it just a more settled kind of spirit. Um, she was still fiery and she could still be abrasive, but she wasn't living a life of tumult like she had with Bill where, I mean, once she was in Oxford and she was seeing Lewis regularly, she was set up. She had her kids out of the house and she could write, she had, could have a regular writing schedule uh, for the first time since they were born. And she had the time and the space to think, to walk, to to have intellectual conversations and to have a life that she hadn't had with a person who was, um, who was a, a peaceful person and who had a gentle spirit and, you know, that their constant conversations that were intelligent, that were witty, that, you know, were so much of what she loved. And he, Jack really brought out the best in her. And then he saw the best in her, you know, because he brought it out <laughs> and it was there. And, she was, I mean, she was madly in love with him, but it was a gradual awakening for him. Um, and it happened over time, over the, the course of building a relationship and a friendship. You know, it was really their relationship. Their love was truly grounded in friendship. Hmm. Speaking of the four loves. And, and, I, and I've, I've heard Douglas tell the story that they would play Scrabble and they would use multiple bags of letters and you can pretty much go for any word that you want in any language that you want. Yeah. Uh, and given the number of languages between them, that's mildly terrifying. Yeah. I, Belle Kaufman told me that same story when she visited them in Oxford, that, that's it, you know, that they, they were playing in all different languages and it was just kind of mind boggling. When I play Scrabble with my wife, I keep trying to use Latin words and she keeps telling me it's not allowed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice try. I said, Jack and Joy would let me do this. Uh, yeah. doesn't, doesn't cut any mustard with her, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so you, you've spoken a little bit about 
the different aspects of Joy's life and different takes on her life. And Joy has really received a mixed reception. Uh, well, she first of all received it among Lewis's own friends. Not everybody was a fan of Joy. Um, I've interviewed Dr. Don W. King talking about Warney, and Warney loved her. But not all of his friends did. And this trend sort of continues today in Lewis scholarship. And what I really enjoyed about your book was I, I felt like we were getting as, as balanced an assessment of another person as is humanly possible, trying to bring forward the evidence. And I, I really liked the way you just described it there. Jack brought out stuff in Joy in the same way that I'm sure she brought it out in him. And I say that because we've been going through the stuff that Lewis wrote around the time that she was around, till we have faces and the four loves. And you definitely see new elements entering his books as this woman becomes a greater part of his life. What is it about Joy that, that makes all of this so complicated? And uh, why do people get so passionate about trying to present one definitive vision of who this woman was in relation to Lewis? You know, it, I really appreciate you saying that you um, found my book balanced because I tried really hard to to um, not fall into the trap of taking a side of you know demonizing or idealizing, and it it could be very difficult to find that balance and also to um, really keep myself in check about not swinging the pendulum on one side or the other of any given you know point in her life. Uh, the thing I struggled with the most was Bill because he, I found him to be actually a lot more um, sympathetic. I, I felt mm. real compassion for him. And um, like David Gresham told me, you know, my mother waged a successful propaganda campaign against my father. And uh, I didn't really believe David at first. I mean, when I first interviewed him, I, I think I, I didn't follow up on things because I, I believed more of the, the the mythology the shadowlands mythology you know and, and also joy's own you know accounts but even lewis said said you know wrote to bill i can't judge you know between your you and joy or your story and joys or something i can you know you have to check the wording of that letter but you know i think that because people really love lewis and he means so much to them personally they really want him to have had a certain kind of life hmm. and joy wasn't that certain kind of life. And so there are a lot of gymnastics that and hoops that people jump through uh, to try to kind of justify certain of her life choices or things that she said. She was brash. She was, she was a witty New Yorker. Well, actually she was like, really, she could be really rude and hurtful. Yes, she was, she was witty and she was brash and New Yorkers are known for being plain spoken. But, um, and sometimes rude, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, she was a step, she was beyond, she was a little beyond. And, and then there, the, then there's the other side, you know, pe people, especially some of Lewis's friends who disliked her, uh, where I really think that some of their dislike was because she was just really abrasive and they didn't like her personality. And I, I may not have liked her personality either. If I was trying to be friends with her, I'm not sure I would have. I don't know how that would have gone. I don't know. So I think that was a big part of it. And I think some of them maybe could have been won over, but some of them maybe would never have been won over because she was an American, a Jew, and a divorcee, and a woman. Um, and those things combined were just too many strikes for a number of, 
of, you know, old white Oxford men. But strangely not Warney. No, and, and also not other of their friends, like um, Roger Lancelin Green and, um, and June Lancelin Green, who I interviewed, and I went to their house, and she was absolutely lovely, and she just adored Joy. Then they traveled together, and so th- this was not by any means an across-the-board experience that everybody had of Joy. There were different experiences, but it is interesting how it continues today and how, you know... It, Frankly, it's discouraging as a scholar to to work so hard to unearth as much evidence for who a person was, whatever that evidence might be, you know, going in with no agenda to prove nothing, to just find as much information as I possibly could, and to draw as accurate a portrait as I could based on the material that I could find. And that includes really assessing the credibility of the people I interviewed. And not everybody was as credible as as other people. And sometimes people told me things that I found um, to be not true based on other evidence, and I didn't include that. But uh, but it's disheartening to do to you know to do so much of that uh, you know really groundbreaking original work, and then to have people say, well, you know, to kind of explain away or justify aspects of her life based on you know a myth that they would rather believe, or based on a, you know historical fiction that they would rather believe. It's rather ironic that Lewis gifted her a copy of my favorite book of his, The Great Divorce. And in the front of it, he he wrote something to the effect of that there are three idols or images in my life I must constantly destroy and rebuild. And that's my image of God, my neighbor, and myself. And yet, I do get the impression that people do that with joy that there is an image of her that they are more comfortable with, either positive or negative. Mm -hmm. And they would prefer to hang on to that rather than dealing with the complicated fact that she was a person like anybody else. And that means that there's going to be good and bad, that there's going to be, in particular for her, wounds. I think that's one of the big things I got out of your book, just from the raw facts of her parents, that relationship when she was a child and when she was an adult, Mm -hmm. Bill's own background, his PTSD, the damage that their relationship together would do, and then particularly dabbling in things like Dianetics. Uh, you know, it's, as, for, as with most things, I'm always amazed that people come out as balanced as they are. Yeah, you know, I think this tendency to um, either uh, see someone as, to see someone as something that we want, it doesn't just apply to our heroes, but it's what we do with people in life. And it's dangerous. And it's, it's why, you know, I really, I really believe that biography should be about a whole person, a nuanced approach, not what people call warts and all for the sake of being sensationalistic, but, mm-hmm. but the holding the good with the bad and the complicated all together, not that, you know, no, no person is, is one dimensional um, or black and white. We're all shades of gray and all colors on the spectrum and it all works together to create a picture and it's not um it's not fair to it's not fair to readers to um to go to one one end one extreme or the other uh in biography and i think there is a special tendency in christian biography to write biographies of people we should emulate and to scrub them clean a little bit Mm-hmm. which um, is baffling to me because as 
Christians, we see God as the sort of the ultimate uh, example of of how to do everything, right? And so if he's the author of the Bible, which he is, and, and the Bible is essentially a compendium of biographies, what do we see there? We don't see that he chose only the people who were model citizens of the world to, to write about, to tell their stories. And, you know, certainly he didn't scrub clean the portraits of the people whose lives he wanted us to learn about. And there's a reason there. And so I, I really believe that um, that it's important to, to have the right motives writing biography, not to be sensationalistic, but to be compassionate and sensitive and to tell a full story of a real human being. And, and that includes flaws and sins because nobody's perfect. And listeners, I hope this discussion has uh, whet your appetite to learn more about this legitimately incredible woman. And you can read about that in Joy, Poet, Seeker, and the Woman Who Captivated C.S. Lewis. But as we draw things to a close and wrap up, you're working on a project about an author I literally just started reading about two weeks ago, Madeleine Lengel. Uh, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a taste of that and a little bit of the story as to how you got involved in that? Madeline Langle uh, is best known as the author of Wrinkle in Time, although she wrote about 60 books. She wrote many, many novels and many nonfiction books um, for young people and for adults. And she was um, an influential woman writer who really, I believe, kind of paved the way for uh, many writers to come because she was groundbreaking as a woman writer of science fiction fantasy. Uh, her Wrinkle in Time was unlike anything that had ever been done before, and certainly unlike anything that had been done by a woman. So Madeline was born in 1919, uh, uh, sorry, 1918, um, just a few years after Joy, and, but lived, to be, lived till um, 2007. Uh, a very, very long life, almost twice as long as Joy, as Joy's. Um, and her name, as a potential next subject, was floated to me by Marge Mead at the Wade Center, I think in Marge's office. And Madeline had written a poem for Marge's wedding. And Mar Marge knew her because Madeline did a lot with Wheaton at the time in the 70s. And um, I put the idea aside because I was working on Joy, but I mentioned it to my editor and to my agent. And after Joy was finished and published and out for a year or so, my editor at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt moved to Farrar, Strauss and Giroux, which is Madeline's, uh, which was Madeline's publishing house and published Wrinkle in Time and many of her other books. And then my editor, you know, sort of made the rounds of people telling people that she had, that she was moving to this house and told talked to my agent and um, mentioned, you know, raised the idea of doing Madeline Langle. And I was not in the place where I was ready to take on another biography. <laughs> I was pregnant with my second child. And I was like, this is, I can do one or the other. I can have another baby or I can write another book, but I can't do both. But I couldn't shake the feeling. I just really could not stop thinking about Madeline every day, pushing my, my first child back and forth in a stroller to his daycare on um, West 107th Street in Manhattan. And finally, I just thought, let me just reach out to her estate and just see, maybe somebody else is working on biography or maybe the family is opposed to it. And in that case, I don't want to do it because I really only want to work with a family that's cooperative. It's just too much of an uphill battle otherwise. And so 
I reached out and I um, contacted her granddaughter, who I learned through some Google searches was managing the Langle website, Madeline Langle website. And she wrote me back. It turned out she lived on West 107th Street, where I had been walking. I've been walking past her apartment every day. And not only that, but over 100 boxes of Madeline's papers, um, including journals, correspondence, um, drafts of Wrinkle in Time, unpublished drafts of other novels and short stories, family scrapbooks and pictures and speeches and lecture notes were in a storage unit in a building two doors down from my son's daycare that I had also been walking past every day. (laughs) (laughs) So as soon as I heard that, you know, I left thinking, I guess I have to write this book. (laughs) Pretty much. uh, There's no way around that. And uh, I have an editor, you know, at at a dream literary publishing house that is interested and who I've already worked with and have a relationship with, and I have all the material literally at my fingertips. So I began working on a proposal and and then got a contract, and now I'm several years into that work and very excited about it. It's really, you know, it's it, Madeline was also a Christian and had a, a her own whole spiritual journey, and that's obviously an attraction to me. And writing about women who are are serious career writers while also having children you know navigating motherhood and their careers at the same time is is a personal and professional interest for me so that's that's still a work in progress and still several years away but well well underway <laughs> well around the time that this episode will be published we'll be planning another patron event where we will be watching the science fiction makers where Madeline is one of the writers who is examined. So who knows? I think we we might have to have you back once you've finished that book to talk about it as well. Yeah, I can't wait. I would love to do that. Abigail, thank you so much for coming on the show. As the landlord rings the last call bell and we finish our drinks, could you please tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of your book, Joy, Poet, Seeker, and the Woman Who Captivated C.S. Lewis? Sure. Uh, I have a website, abigailsantamaria.com. I am occasionally on Twitter at Abby's Tweets. I am largely off social media these days uh, as I focus on my my new book and my family, but uh, you can uh, check out those channels for more. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners and our patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. And if you're a new listener, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review of our podcast on whatever podcasting platform you use. And please join us next time when we're going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.